following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, if you'll take your copy of the Word of God into your hands and open up to the first letter of John, the first epistle of John this morning. We're going to be continuing our study through First John, and we're going to be starting in chapter 2 this morning. Chapter 2, so First John and chapter 2. And it is with great joy and great thanks that we then hear from our living God as he speaks to us through his word in First John chapter 2. Starting in verse 1 and going through verse 6 this morning. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here we come to chapter 2. And just as a way of introduction, I want to open up and refresh our minds a little bit about where we've been, what we've seen, remind ourselves a little bit of the text as a whole. It's been a few weeks since we've been in First John, and so kind of just get our, our feet back wet as we dive into the pool here of First John chapter 2. So remember, John is addressing a body of believers that was most likely in Ephesus that have experienced some sort of schism or kind of dissension. There's been a group that some commentators have called the cessationists. They've left the church. These individuals may have been practicing an early form of Gnosticism, a belief wherein you had to have a secret knowledge or a deeper knowledge to experience salvation or to experience the spiritual realm. We see this continuing on. This isn't something that just stuck with the early church of the first century church, but rather continues in the teachings of the Buddhists that believe that they need to ascend to a higher power or to a higher sense of nirvana or, or thought, spirituality. We see this in Mormonism, where there's secret knowledge that's revealed only to certain people and to the modern prophets. We see this in apostolic churches today that profess to have modern Prophets, apostles that can reveal new revelation. We see this in Catholicism today. Roman Catholics, as they profess to have a tradition that continues to shape the view of the church. A tradition that, because one person had an experience of, say, Mary or of Jesus, then shapes how they view God. Outside of the word of God. So Gnostic beliefs were quite popular, were growing, and we see them continuing to grow and propagate because everyone wants to have a deeper knowledge. Do we not? I mean, we all desire to have the know. We want to be in the know. This is why gossip is so popular. We, we think of gossip, and it's kind of the sin that we almost push to the side, don't we? We think it's not really a big deal, and it's because we all want to be in the know. And so John is writing a letter to a church that has been experiencing these people who felt like they were in the know. 
He's writing this letter to these people who have experienced all these people that have said, you don't really have faith because you don't know what we know. You haven't experienced what we've experienced. Also, there was probably some docetists. Docetism, remember, was this belief that Christ was not truly man or human, but rather a, a spirit and only a spirit. He was something like if you felt him or if you touched him, that was really just your own mind messing with you. And once again, the docetist saying, we have a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge than you believers or so professed believers. And so John is writing to these believers who knew about the true Christ because John told them about him. He's writing to this church who has experienced these people that have left and said, you don't know. And he said, let me tell you what you do know. Let me give you all of the affirmation, all of the assurance, all of the things that you need to know so that you know you're in the right standing. But to do so, he says, you have to put yourself to the test a little bit. He's like, I'm not going to just let you continue to believe that you know without giving you the test so that you know that you know. And so in this letter, John calls the reader back to the basics of Christian life. He says, don't worry about those people that have left. Don't worry about the Gnostics. Don't worry about the Docetists. Don't worry about any of those guys. Let's get back to the basics of the Christian life. He talks about true doctrine. And hence, he opens up his letter by speaking of the very person of Christ. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He's exactly going against the docetist, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word, in life, word of life, the person and work of Jesus Christ himself, the life that was made manifest, which we have seen, we testify to, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So he wants them to understand true doctrine, he continues that in chapter 1 and verses 5 through 10 as he gives them this series of tests where he says, what is true doctrine? You need to walk in the light as God is in the light, not be in darkness. He calls them to obedience. This basics of Christian life, true doctrine, obedience to God, desiring that they Walk in the light and not in the darkness. What does that mean? But to know him, one, through salvation, but two, to walk in the way in which he walked. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then he calls him to devotion. Calls him to devotion, an ongoing walk. Based on the Greek, we hear as he uses this perfect tense, something that's ongoing. It's not a one-time walk. It's not a one-time salvation. It's not a one-time thing that is done and you just do whatever you want now. It's an ongoing work that you are doing. And his stated goal is to increase joy. To see the believer know that they have eternal life. And know that they indeed belong to Christ. And so this first chapter opens this way. Calling us to not only know first who is Christ. To know what our relationship looks like with him if we are believers. So that we might have joy. And then he continues on to put it to the test in a sense. To ask the hard question. How challenging it is for us, right? When we hear people profess to be believers, we, and should, take them at face value. But as we see things start to pop up, we struggle to ask the hard questions. We struggle to ask, what do you mean by that? How do you understand that? I noticed in this area you're here, but God's word says this. And so John does that for us. And so it's a great encouragement for our lives as we 
desire to honor him and live according to his word. He calls us to walk in the light, to confess sin, to be cleansed by the precious blood of the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we now turn into chapter 2 and we find ourselves seeing that John continues to call us to evaluate our own lives, to know where we stand. And he uses something specific to help us see that. He says, one, he, he reminds us of the life that we have in Christ because with Christ we have an advocate, he says, Jesus Christ the righteous. But also... He says, don't count on his righteousness. Don't count on his advocacy if you are not with him. He's not going to come for you if you are not abiding in him. If you are not walking with him. Now this isn't to be a type of works-based salvation. But rather, he's saying, look at your life, examine it, and know where you stand in relationship to him. Look at your life because your life will be the perfect example of where you stand. Are you continuing in sin? Are you continuing in disobedience? Are you continuing to walk in darkness? Well, if so, then you need to seriously sit down and ask the question, where do I stand? What do I know about the person and work of Christ? However, if you find yourself in the other sense, confessing sin, looking to him as your only means of salvation, desiring to be obedient to his commands, knowing that you have professed him to be Lord and Savior, then look forward to the day when you stand next to him before the judge and you have the advocate, the one who is the propitiation for your sin. Well, before we go through the whole text for this morning, let's lay out a few things for ourselves. We're going to have three points that I'd like to call your hearts and minds to as we open up our text. First, in verse 1, in the first sentence, so 1a, as some people might say, we'll see our first point, the purpose for writing Verse 1b through 2, the promise of Christ. And finally, in verses 3 through 6, the proving of salvation. So the purpose for writing, the promise of Christ, the promise of Christ, and the proving of salvation. Friends, John strives to tell us to live a deeper life of obedience here. I want to reemphasize before we even dive in that this is not as a means of salvific work, nor as a means of gaining favor, but out of a love for the God who saved him and saves you. Friends, a true believer realizes the wretchedness of his own soul realizes how wicked he truly is sees even the potential for his own wickedness to abound if it weren't for the mercy and grace of God and so the believer will desire to see sin put to death to strive towards the goal of obedience praying and hoping to not offend the God who saved him from the wrath of himself, but to save him through this gruesome death of the Savior. And so it's with great joy then that we dive into our text. Remember, we're going to look at three points, the purpose for writing, the promise for, of Christ, and the proving of salvation. And starting in verse 1, in the first sentence there, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Oh, what a beautiful start. My little children. 
My little children, you reckons to a, a father who loves his child and he comes and he calls him, he says, my child, come to me. My son, come, listen. John uses this loving title for the readers and hearers of this letter or sermon and he calls them his little children. He does this throughout the text. He says it in chapter 2 and verse 12, chapter 2 and 28. 3-7, He says, my, my little children, these people that he's cared for and tended to and probably preached to and shared the gospel with and built them up over time. And he says, my little children, what a, what a sign of love he has for the recipient of this letter. And here he states the purpose for his writings. He says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. John has a clear purpose in writing. So that they may not sin. Pointing the reader to the true and genuine faith that leads to lives that are growing in holiness. Growing in obedience. Growing in a desire to see sin put to death. But how are they to do this? Is it through strict obedience in the sense of, I just need to check the marks, I got to read my Bible for a certain period, and I got to pray for a certain period? No, no. He says, be true believers. Live in the light. He's talked about this previously. Living in truth, as we saw last time, and as he will grow upon in the coming verses. He says, my desire is to see you to put to death sin. Now let's not be confused. John is not by any means saying that the believers would never sin again. John, as he's writing this, probably has sin that he is confessing to the Lord. He knows that sin is ongoing. He knows that sin in the life of the believer continues on. And it's a battle that they must wage. It harkens us back to Paul in Romans, right? Romans chapter 6. I'm going to just turn there real quick. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15. says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, that you were once slaves of sin, had become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, had become slaves to righteousness. It's hearkening back to that. He's saying, not only should we not sin, but we shouldn't also indulge in sin. Our desire is to see sin put to death, realizing that It's going to be an ongoing process. And so John's true desire is to see that the believer does not sin. He desires to see himself not sin. He stands before God and he confesses his sins. And his plea is that, Lord, help me to put to death sin. My desire is not to offend you. My desire is not to be an affront to the glory of God, an attack upon the glory of God. These tests that he's laid out are not set out to destroy us, right? He's set out these tests before and he said, do you walk in darkness or are you in the light? Do you confess sin or do you not confess sin? He's going to go on. Do you walk in the way in which you walk? Do you obey his commands? His desire is to see people wake up. To wake up and to know where they stand so that they can walk in the light. So that they can walk in the truth. So that they confess sin. His desire is to see them, yes, decrease in sin. It's a good prayer for us. We know we'll never stop sinning while we're here on earth. But it's a desire we can have. It's a fair question to have for ourselves. Do we desire not to sin? Or have we become just complacent with the reality of sin? Slowly lowering our arms in the battle. I know I've experienced this at times, and I'm sure you have too. You feel defeated. You feel beat up. 
you feel torn down and there's a sense in which you where you're just like, I just don't want to fight anymore. I'm tired. I'm tired of the fight. And John says, brother, keep praying. Keep seeking to see sin put to death. Keep seeking that you can say, my sin is, is decreasing. I still sin, but it's, it's less frequent. I'm not battling the same battles I once did. Do we see to see our sin, each and every one of them, be put to death? Well, may we find ourselves as true and devoted believers putting to death every sin. Thankfully, as John will go on to say, when we do sin, we're not alone. We don't have to shy away in utter despair. We do not have to find ourselves completely lost. Though we should be devastated by our sin, it doesn't mean that we just shrink away and wither up and give up. Why? Well, because as believers, we have something special. And that'll get us into our next section of text. The promise of Christ. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But if anyone does sin, John starts with this contrasting language that he's well known for throughout his gospel and in this letter. His goal is that they may not sin. Sin being the Greek word here that's most commonly uh, used. And it means to miss the mark of sorts. It's God has laid out a perfect standard and man has fallen short of that. He's put an end goal and man couldn't even run the race. Couldn't get to the benchmark or, or pass it for that matter. So this is not to say that John would argue that there is a chance again that we would never sin. But rather he is stating something more like the fact of, well, if anyone does sin, because they will, here's what you need to know. Remember, John was addressing Gnostic and Docetic beliefs that people who truly believe they could get to a higher feeling, a higher knowledge, a higher spirituality, and eventually all of their sins may go away. They just get to a high enough level and sin is gone and they don't have to deal with it anymore. They get to a spiritual level where they separate from the body and maybe then they can be perfect. It's like an early form of Pelagianism that sin, sure sin happens, but technically you could have been without sin. No, John doesn't agree with that. He says, no, you will sin. He knows you will sin. But he says, when you do sin... Because you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Notice he uses this plural word, we. He says, lumping himself as a believer with the other believers, the little children that he's writing to, he says, we have an advocate. What is an advocate? We hear this term a lot, right? We throw it out there. You have an advocate. Well, it's somebody who's going to publicly recommend or support you. Someone who comes alongside you. Someone who pleads your case. We see advocacy for all kinds of different things in our world today. Both good things and wicked things. Don't we? But he says you have an advocate for something that is quite special. And we're going to talk more about that. He uses the Greek word parakletos, paraclete. It's the same word that he used in reference to the Holy Spirit back in John. I'm going to just turn back there briefly. John chapter 14. He uses the, the word paraclete or advocate or helper referencing the Spirit. In John chapter 14 and verse 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He's talking about the Spirit. Chapter 14 and verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit. Chapter 16 and verse 7, he uses it again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate, will not come to you. The, the paraclete. It's the same word that's being used here. It's as if we 
have stepped into the very courtroom with God the Father. We have sinned. We have missed the mark. We're standing, waiting for our judgment, wherein by ourselves we have nothing to stand on. If you are by yourself standing before God, you have no defense for your crimes. You are literally left without word, left without argument, left for God's wrath to be poured upon you. You're just waiting that moment for the judgment to come. As I was thinking about that, this being alone before God, without an advocate, without Jesus Christ the righteous, it made me think of those times when you have a nervous anxiousness, right? You're, you know something bad is about to happen, and it weighs on you, and it's heavy, and it's heavy, and it's heavy, and you almost feel like you could sink into the floor, you almost feel like if you could just shy away and cover yourself up and you could just hide from the situation, maybe it would just make things go away. But that won't be the case before God. You'll have to stand before Him as we all will. And so the question becomes, are you standing alone or are you going to be standing with Christ through repentance and faith? He says, we have an advocate with the Father but this time John is not referring to the Holy Spirit, but to Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the one who came to this earth as truly man and truly God and understands human weakness, though he is without sin, lived a perfect life, died on our behalf. The one that has called us to confess our sin, to receive the salvation that only he offers Jesus Christ, the righteous, the moral upright one, the virtuous one, the one who is without sin, the one who is perfect in all of his ways, holy and just. We see John use this to refer to Jesus throughout the text, both directly and indirectly. Chapter 2, verse 6, he says, to walk in the way in which he walked. Well, why would we want to walk in a way of a sinner, right? We'd want to walk in the way of the Holy One. Chapter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 29. He says, If you know that He is righteous, perfect in all of His ways. Chapter 3 and verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. He is righteous. Chapter 3 and verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in, then, in him there is no sin. He's righteous and perfect and holy. Chapter 3 and verse 7, he continues, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He is perfect in all of his ways. And so we have this advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Remember, he is the one who is able to cleanse us. As we saw in chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A righteous Savior He is. We can't wash away mud with more mud. You can't, you see these people do these as sermon illustrations. They pull out water and then they have some dirt or some kind of like dark liquid or food coloring and they put it in and you say you can't get rid of it. By adding more to it, right? It's the same, same thing here. He says, we have Jesus Christ the righteous. The advocate who is able to stand before God because he is God. He is holy. He can stand before the Father because he is the Son. The perfect Son. Who lived the perfect life. Died the perfect death. The death that we deserved and was raised. Because he was without sin and death could not hold him. And he stands then by your side as an advocate and he says, this one, this one is mine. We see something similar back in Hebrews. If you want to turn back there with me, Hebrews chapter 7. We see something about the purifying work of Christ and his holiness. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 
and 26. He refers to him as the high priest or the righteous one. He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, to be an advocate for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, because why? He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We have a high priest who is shared in our humanity, but is utterly like us, unlike us, because he is without sin. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Hebrews refers to him as the high priest, but John here refers to him as the paraclete or the advocate. And he says, continuing on, he is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is the believer's advocate because he is also the propitiation for our sin. David Smith in his commentary back in 1910 on the epistles of John said this, and I think this is helpful. Our advocate does not plead that we are innocent. He doesn't stand next to us and say, he didn't do it. He doesn't adduce extenuating circumstances. As we see in a court of law today where he says, well, he may have done it, but it's because such and such happened first. No, he acknowledges our guilt and presents his vicarious work as the ground for our acquittal. He doesn't claim we are innocent. He doesn't give an excuse for why we did what we did, but rather he puts his own work as the grounds for the acquittal. He puts his own work on the stand and he says, but look at this, look at what I have done on his behalf. Propitiation, it's a term that we also use frequently in the church, do we not? I know I've prayed it from this very pulpit many times, professing Christ to be our propitiation, but what does it mean? The Greek word hilosmos, appeasement, satisfaction. We see this in Luke chapter 18. It means to make satisfaction for. Romans chapter 3, he talks about it as a sacrifice of atonement for appeasing God's wrath. The Septuagint, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, designates the atoning work or the propitiation as the mercy seat. Linking the Old Testament to the new. I'm going to turn back to Exodus chapter 25 if you want to join me there. Second book in your Bible, Exodus in chapter 25. Exodus in chapter 25. I just want to read this imagery of the atoning work here. We're going to start in verse 17 and just read through 22. This is within the tabernacle, and he says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, a propitiation of pure gold, a place for propitiation. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. The mercy seat. And what we would see happen is that as the priest would come in, he would sprinkle the mercy seat with blood as a propitiating work, as an atoning work, offering the sacrifice before God. 
This mercy seat being the place between the ark and between the Shekinah glory, God's glory that would dwell then with him there as he spoke to his people. It'd be where he would come and communicate with Israel. Pointing to the future atonement. Pointing to the future where Christ would come and dwell with his people, where blood would be shed as the permanent and lasting and only sacrifice once and for all for those that believe in him. I'm going to turn back to Hebrews chapter 9 briefly. Verses 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, not into the mercy seat made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that is not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed by, for one man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. copy of the thing to come in Christ Jesus. As you read this, I couldn't help but think, he says, not to suffer repeatedly. There's people that profess that to be true, that Christ is suffering repeatedly on our behalf. Roman Catholics profess that at the Mass, Jesus is offered up again on the altar as the propitiating work but no, no. We see here in First John, he was once and for all the propitiating work for our sins. It's not for any reason. It's not because God the Father was cranky one morning. It's not because he was not getting his way, but rather because of sin. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the final and ultimate and only propitiating work. Notice he doesn't say that it's just for our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. Sins require propitiation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed. Sin requires propitiation. Romans chapter 6 and 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sinners continually offend a perfect God who in turn must execute justice by punishing the sinner. And God's justice must be satisfied. There's only two ways it's going to happen. Either it's going to happen in Christ and you are in him and you abide in him and you put your faith in him alone for salvation or it's in hell. You have one of two options. You have one of two ways that God's wrath will be poured out. It was either in Christ in which you find your salvation or you will be punished forever in hell. Not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Many have said that this points to a universal salvation wherein no one would ever go to hell. Christ died for all sin, and so everyone's just free to do as they want, because he died, and it's fine, we're good. Others have pointed to this meaning unlimited atonement, wherein Christ provides the potential for all to be saved. He puts it out there kind of like a platter, and he says, if you want to pick the salvation part, that, that's right there. You can pick that if you want. However, both of these are incorrect. Both strip the work of Christ on the cross from its very specific person or purpose to fulfill the wrath of God. To make a 
real satisfaction of God's wrath. It's more than just a potential satisfaction. It's more than just a possible option, but a real, perfect satisfaction of God's wrath for those that have been called unto salvation. Not only for ours, John is speaking not only for those that were the immediate recipients of this letter but and himself, but also he is saying for those that would believe upon Christ. Those that would be like us today that if we are believers in Christ are hearing and reading this letter. And so you ask, well, what about the whole world? Well, from this pulpit, I know many times we have discussed how we understand the words whole world. Scripturally, this is meant to be understood as an expression of mankind, humanity throughout the earth, but not every individual. This isn't pointing out to all seven plus billion people. The world points to the realm of mankind. John chapter 1 and verse 29, he says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not everyone. Because we would know that, right? We would say, well, not everyone's a believer. But speaking of mankind as a whole, humans, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, given for all that would be called unto salvation. Christ's death actually satisfies God's wrath, and then it is definite in saving those who would be called to salvation and would believe in his work on the cross. We know that as Justin preached through the doctrines of grace, we saw this very reality. Christ's work is specific, and hence we affirm the view of limited atonement or particular redemption simply to say that Christ accomplished his goal. John thus far has pointed us to a deeper desire that we may first of all not sin and has given us now a glorious reality. That when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. How is he our advocate? Because he is our propitiation that has pleased the Father's just judgment upon our sinful souls. Now John turns back to his series of almost tests calling us to right response to the salvation and propitiating work of Christ. He rightly argues that to be a believer is to be obedient to Christ as your Lord, following his commands, not out of manipulation or coercion, but out of a desire to bring honor and glory to the one who has saved you. To respond rightly is to say, I will do what he desires because of what he has done for me. Let's turn our attention then now to verses 3 through 6 as we finish out this section of text with the proving of salvation, our final point. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And by this we know that we have come to know him. We transition to this next section of text wherein John wants the reader to both challenge their faith and find assurance in that testing. He says, we know, we have a certainty of belief, thought. There are no doubts, there's no wishy-washiness. He uses the present tense here, this ongoing knowledge, continually knowing or perceiving. And he says, we know that we have come to know him, to be true believers, speaking of knowledge of Christ. To know him is a, in the Greek is a perfect tense, it's, this past action with lasting or ongoing results. He says, John is not pointing to an intellectual knowledge. It's not like a 
Well, I know that the Grand Canyon exists because I've seen pictures of it, but I've never been there. This is not knowing in the sense of I have heard of this, but have no experience of what to say with it. I've heard that Russia gets cold. I've never been there. I haven't experienced. I, I can't affirm that to be true. I hear that the Arctic has a lot of ice. Probably. I've never been there. I have no way to experience or say that's true. But rather, John is not saying these things. He is saying that he has a saving knowledge of Christ, which comes from being in a saving relationship with him. It's a deeper knowledge than that, not like the Gnostic type of deeper knowledge. This is a deeper knowledge in that you know the Savior because you've experienced his salvation he has worked in your heart and he has called you unto salvation and you have repented and believed on him and you've seen the transformation begin in your life. Paul speaks of this in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He's talking about knowing God is not something that is just a, a, a head knowledge or a, a knowledge of of facts, but a knowledge in the sense of a saving knowledge. Second Timothy chapter three, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Never having the true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What comes with the knowledge of Christ that goes beyond intellect and down to a saving knowledge of him? God's law is written on your hearts and you desire to obey his commands. It's not to earn favor or to hope that God will give special attention because you did enough. Rather, it is a deep desire to honor the God who created and saved you. And so John says, we can know Christ if uh, we can know that we know Christ if we keep his commands. If we keep his commands. And th by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commands. To keep is to be on guard. To attend carefully to. To observe. To pay attention to. It's this, per or it's this present tense. It's this ongoing keeping. And the commands, what does he mean by that? He's talking about Christ's directives. So we see laid out in his earthly ministry, his call is to keep the commandments. We see this happening throughout John. John chapter 14, I'm just going to pop back there again just so you get a picture for Christ calling us to keep his commands. This isn't something John made up. This isn't something John was just doing on his own. He says, uh, John chapter 14 and verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commands. John chapter 14 and verse 21 Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. He doesn't hold fast to the word of God. John chapter 15 and verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Obedience to his commands is an outward sign of our love for him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands. John is pointing to those who are professing believers, as they argue, they know Christ, but then outwardly show no signs of saving faith. He could probably be talking specifically about the Gnostics and the Docetists that were out there professing to know Christ, but then are living these outwardly sinful lives, not living in obedience to Him. But He was also talking to these believers and asking them to challenge themselves and ask the question, I say I know Him, do I show that I know Him? Does my life show that I am living in obedience have I seen a transformation of my heart where I desire to put to death sin? Do I desire to be obedient to Him? 
John doesn't take it easy on those who claim faith, but rather wants the professing believer to examine and know if they are in the faith. I'm sure many of you have heard the term carnal Christians. What an oxymoron, right? What a, an irony to say carnal Christian. Doesn't make any sense. Very true. Christians who profess to know Christ but do not submit to him as Lord. It's an easy definition of it. They would argue you can profess to know Christ and have a saving knowledge of him without obedience to him. It reminds us of faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. Because the reality is, is that faith and works come hand in hand. Two sides of the same coin. You can't have it one without the other. I can't pick up a penny and see that it has heads and not have tails on the back end. Or else you have a very fancy penny and that might be worth money. But that's not how it comes with faith, right? Faith and works come hand in hand. This is not to claim that works save, for the scriptures are clear. We are justified by faith alone, Galatians 2.16. However, the scriptures are also clear that faith leads to the presence of good works and obedience to Christ, as we see in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. To see no good works is to see no salvation at all. And in turn, John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you say you know Christ and live in disobedience to him, is to be a liar and to lack truth. This book is meant to bring about assurance, is it not? This letter of 1 John. Everybody knows it, right? They say, John is to know how to be saved, and 1 John is to know that you are saved. Supposed to be assurance, but boy, it doesn't feel like that, does it? Well, we can't have true assurance without knowing for a fact we are saved. John doesn't want us to have self deceit, to live in self deceit. He doesn't want us to be like those in Matthew chapter 7 who cry out when they come to come before God and he says, Lord, Lord. We, we come before you now, and he says, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. John would rather, he points out their self-deceit now, and calls out their blindness, and says, look at where you really stand before God, so that you can be in right relationship with him, because my desire is that you never stand before him in here, you worker of lawlessness, you worker of iniquity. Get away from me, I never knew you. John desires that all who profess Christ know the real and true relationship that comes with it through repentance and faith. So to confess Christ is to know Christ, but to remain in disobedience is to make you a liar. This means that you're not only lying to others because you're professing something that you do not know, but you're lying to yourself. It's a, it's a double-edged sword in a way. It's a sad reality on two fronts. You're self-deceived inwardly in saying you profess to know Christ, but then you're living in utter disobedience and living in sin and debauchery and continuing on in all of the sins that you've known and, and loved and cherished. But even on another sad reality, you're lying to others. It harkens back to the saying it would be worse, or it's, it's better to be ha have a millstone wrapped around your neck and to be thrown into the water, into the depths of the sea, than to cause a little one to stumble. It's the sense in which we don't want to be hypocrites because our witness before Christ is so important. We should desire to live a life that is not hypocritical, but is genuine, that is filled with integrity, with truth. He says, you're not only a liar, but the truth is not in you. The saving truth. John chapter 18 and verse 37. As Jesus has been arrested, he stands before Pilate. And this is what it says. Then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? 
Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And what is the answer? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. To be in truth means to be obedient to his word. To know Christ is to listen to the shepherd. To obey the shepherd. Obviously, we're going to continue to sin, right? And so we'll have these stretches of disobedience. We'll have these times where we don't follow as well as we should. We're trying to veer from the path, but a believer will come and hear the shepherd again. The Spirit will produce in them a conviction to turn from their sin and turn to righteousness. John in this has both called out anyone who has professes to know Christ but is living in disobedience while also addressing those who have obtained this, quote, higher knowledge, right? Said that they were above any of this. He says, no, because your lives don't demonstrate that of obedience to Christ. But whoever keeps his word In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. Here we come back to John's contrasting lines. He's talked about those who profess to know him, but are not keeping his commands. And now he comes to those who keep his commands. Whoever keeps his word, speaking of the true believer, the one who is living in ongoing repentance and belief in Christ. What's the result? He says, in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. How are we to understand that? The love of God is perfected. Well, a few notes should be made to help us wrap our hearts and minds around this phrasing. Perfect, he uses the present tense of perfected. Remember earlier we talked about perfected being this completed action with ongoing results. The love of God is perfected. Being perfected ongoing in a way. The love of God also pointing to Really, our understanding should be of a love for God, describing a genuine love for Him. We see this happen in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. How do we show love for God? How do we show love of God? We keep His commandments, and it's being perfected. John is telling the reader, Obedience to God's Word is deeper than simply following the rules. It's deeper than just checking off the next mark but a response of love for God and that God's work in the life of the believer is being perfected based on the salvation they have already received. And he says, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We come to this final line in our text for today. By this we may know that we are in him. Where have we heard those kind of words before? John chapter 15. We'll turn our attention back there. John chapter 15. Verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. To be a true believer is to say that we know him and abide in him. Whoever says he abides in him, Christ, knowing, it's, it's claiming to know that you are a knower of Christ, a true believer, one who is connected to the vine, a deep permanent attachment to God that can only come through the saving work of Christ. It's not a temporary work. It's not a temporary salvation, but a permanent salvation. And he says, what is the result? Ought to walk in the way, the same way in which he walked. Walk is this metaphorical language for the daily conduct of the life of the believer. We saw it back in chapter 1 and verse 7 of 1 John. But if we walk in the light... Jesus exemplified this perfectly for us in what we ought to do. Jesus was obedient, was he not? John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Obedience. John chapter 8 and verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to have a Savior who is obedient. We didn't have to look at a man who was sinful first. And we didn't have to look for a man who just was trying to break all the rules. It's funny because so many of our uh, Christian churches today, a lot of mega churches, a lot of modern Christianity, talk about how Jesus was a rule breaker. He wanted to break the rules and break the customs and break all of the things that were happening. He wanted to go in and he wanted to disrupt the commonplace and the common things. And in a way he did. Yes, yeah, he did. Sure, he, he broke some of the norms of culture at the time. He went against some of the things that were popular or common. We see that when he goes and he chases out all the money changers, right? He, this was commonplace. People thought, nah, that's fine. And he says... But the reality is, is he wasn't being obedient to the culture of the day. He was being obedient to the Father in heaven. To throw it around as if he was some rule breaker that was just living on the edge is to really take it out of context. To not show the true Christ who was obedient to the Father, even unto death. It reminds us of Paul, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's what we prayed earlier that we have faithful men throughout history that desire to walk with Christ and we want to be imitators of Christ. That should be our desire. We should look upon the life of the Lord Jesus and desire that we live lives that are following in his footsteps. I don't want to follow in the footsteps of some guy that's walking on the street. I don't want to follow in the footsteps of my parents. I don't want to follow in the footsteps of anyone. I want to follow in the footsteps of Christ. I don't want to follow in the footsteps of the president or our congressman or senate. I don't want to follow in the cool and uh, hip and trendy person of the day or celebrity. I want to follow, I want to walk in the one who walked before the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth and walked in the perfect way. That should be our desire. So as we come to a close, I want to invite you to recall a few beautiful truths for believers that I I pray will stir in your heart this week and even in years to come as you walk with the Lord. As a believer, you will sin. You will sin. And you will be discouraged by that sin. And you will be ashamed of that sin. And you will hurt over that sin. And you will cry out because of that sin. At times it will break you. And you will find yourselves on your knees and on your face. Pleading with God saying, I am sorry Lord. For I have sinned against you again. But in that discouragement. In that plea. In that pain and sorrow. Remember that you have an advocate, Jesus, the righteous. He died on a cross for you. He satisfied God's wrath for you. This is not to make much of you. This is not to make you great. But to remind you that Jesus' work was specific and that it saved you for if you were foreknown for salvation. This may drive us all the more to bring the gospel to the masses, to the nations, To desire to bring the great news of salvation to all people. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the wrath of God. He was the propitiation for sin. Secondly, when you are struggling with assurance, as we all do at various times, may we find ourselves growing in obedience to the one who saved us. May we desire to bring glory to God by doing that which he commanded even in the midst of various trials where we fail and when we have to get back up, may we find ourselves continuing to get back up by God's grace and strive towards the finish line. May we continue to run towards that line, run towards the finish of our race, 
though we may be marred and bloodied, though we may be beaten and bruised, may we run and strive looking towards the end where the advocate, our advocate, Jesus the righteous is ready to stand beside us and offer up his work as the means of our salvation. Striving to run, not so that he can claim us innocent, not so that he can offer up extenuating circumstances, but that he can say, but look upon the work that I did. Look upon me. Look upon the righteousness that I have placed upon this one that is mine. Let our love for him drive us into deeper obedience to his command. May we strive to be faithful witnesses as we strive to walk in the way in which he walked. Friends, I will close by saying, if you find yourself not knowing Christ this morning, there is a way forward. (coughs) Repent and believe in him. It's your only means of salvation. Do not, I repeat, do not trust in your own works. Do not look to yourself this morning. Do not look to anything you've done. Forget it. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you've saved lives. I don't care if you've given all of your money away. I don't care what you've done. Do not look to that. Do not be confused into thinking that you will earn a place next to the advocate. Rather, when you stand before a judge, the judge, the only judge, God the Almighty, if you are outside of Christ, you will find yourself alone before the Holy God will, who will punish sin. Remember, he's going to punish it in one of two ways. It's either in Christ or in hell. Which one are you going to, where are you going to be? Are you going to be in Christ or are you going to be in hell? Rather, rather than looking to your works, rather than looking to anything you've done, look to the Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See that he is the perfect propitiation for sin. Repent and believe on him, for he is the only, only, only way. Let us close in prayer.